So uh, turn to Isaiah 40. Um, If you have a paper copy of the Bible, it's going to be right smack dab in the middle of your Bible after the Psalms, Proverbs, and wisdom literature and before the other minor prophets. Uh, I would encourage you, um, if you have a phone Bible, to still get it out. It's a long passage we'll be reading, um, so you'd you'd really be blessed by following along. Um, As you get there, I want to wish you all a happy Fourth of July. It's a wonderful holiday. It's good to celebrate the freedom we have here and, and really the people who have laid their lives down for that. Um, the Lord's been gracious to us. Um, but if we're going to begin to understand Isaiah 40 and the historical context in which it comes, we're going to have to try to do something a little, a little strange this morning. We're going to have to try to imagine a world where the 4th of July is not a happy holiday. We're going to have to imagine a world where the 4th of July brings you, as an American, grief and pain and bitterness. Let me explain. Let's just pretend uh, that because of the sins and moral failings of America, God, in his just rule over the nations, decides to discipline and judge America through military conquest. That, that God sends other nations from around the world to conquer and win a war against America. And our conquerors, uh, because everyone in America owns so many guns, decide to ship us all across the world for peace. And so now, as an American, with all the heritage, knowing what life in America was like before this, you are now in a very unpleasant land, in a very unpleasant climate, with a very unpleasant job. You've been separated from your family. And the 4th of July rolls around. How do you feel? What's your, what's your heart like towards the Lord who has allowed this to happen to you? And to so many people you know. Well, uh, that really did happen. Um, God chose a people for himself, a special people, the nation of Israel. Uh, this is Old Testament. And, and he blessed them and brought them to this great land and said, if you will just obey me and walk with me, it will all be well. I will make you the greatest of the nations. But over hundreds of years, they rejected God again and again and again, even though he sent prophets And even though he spoke to them, they they continued to reject him. And so God judged them through military conquest. Babylon invaded and conquered um, Israel and Judah, and they are now living as exiles in a foreign land with all of the emotions and grief and probably bitterness that comes along with that. But in Isaiah 40, uh, through the prophet, God brings some very, very good news Uh, We'll start in verse 9 and read to 31. This good news is not quite what we'd expect, but listen carefully. Isaiah 40, uh, starting in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold. The Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and whom it made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, 
and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he, the Lord, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It is he who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings their host out by number and calling them all by name by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young man shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, you are very great. We thank you that elsewhere the prophets say that your word is like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. And, and Lord, this morning, we, what we need is fire. We need you to come and to let our hearts burn within us, the sight of our Savior. And so, Lord, just be pleased to send your spirit here. Help us to love you and, and understand and obey this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So the scriptures tell us that all human beings are worshipers. Everybody in this room, everybody in the world is a, is a worshiper. We were made to worship. And because we are worshipers, everyone in here has an inescapable desire for glory, to be caught up in something bigger than themselves, to be lost in something, to escape themselves in something greater. Now that desire, of course, can be dulled, it can be misplaced, it's often misplaced, but it's there, present in every, every human heart. And uh, if you understand this, about human beings, it explains some of the most bizarre and some of the most routine, normal human behavior. I recently watched a, a clip online of the first man ever to skydive without a parachute. Luke Akins, who is also a husband and father, jumped out of a plane at 25,000 feet and landed on a net. And at first I was watching this, I was kind of like, man, this is, this is kind of cool. And then the thought struck me, like, why? I mean, you, you, one gust of wind and your wife becomes a widow and your son becomes fatherless. Why risk it? And the only explanation that I can come up with 
is that he just wanted more. He'd skydived 18,000 times before, and it just wasn't enough of a thrill anymore. His life's work wasn't complete anymore. He, he just wanted more. I think about uh, celebrities in our culture. You ever wonder why celebrities keep getting married? You know, they, they, have, they have money, fortune, fame. They, they, they don't have anyone telling them to get married, right? The, the, the culture in Hollywood does not require that of them. But still, three, four times they get married, married, you know, like what, what, what's, what's driving that? I mean, they want to be in love. They want to be caught up in something bigger. They just want a glimpse of something glorious. Us too, though. Um, you ever wondered why the toughest days of your life are the days you're most likely to binge watch Netflix, Netflix, sorry, or, or get lost in your news app? You just want to escape, right? You want to get out of, your, out of yourself. You ever wonder why every, almost every person in this room who is single just wants the one? And every person in this room who's married just wants to get a little bit of the magic back, just wants a really great date night. Everyone, we, we, we just inescapably long for something bigger, for, for, some, for a glimpse of glory. And my hope this morning um, is that everybody could just get a glimpse of the glory of God in Isaiah 40. If you, if you can just get a taste of the God that this passage reveals, wherever, however you've come this morning, you can be made well. If you, if you kind of swaggered in here, you know, life is great right now. I got money in the bank, good vacations, things are awesome. And what you need is some sobriety and some humility. And if you just taste God's glory, you'll have that. Man, if you've come here and you, you, you dragged yourself out of bed and life is so rough right now, that you're, you're, you're surprised you got here. You're surprised you can stand the person you're sitting next to, right? If life is there right now, you taste God's glory and you can be made well. So let's see if we can taste it, get a glimpse. The first thing Isaiah 40 says is this, that God himself, God himself is the good news. The word translated gospel in the New Testament. God himself, the gospel according to Isaiah is God himself, exalted, ruling over the nations. Look at verse nine. It's a call for proclamation. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. God calls his people a herald. Uh, Before the days of presidential tweets, uh, kings used heralds, physical messengers, to to, to go and declare their will, to go proclaim the king's will. And so God calls his people a herald, royal messengers of his good news. But look at the content of the good news, the very end of verse nine, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. A vision of God in his glory, a glimpse, a taste, that's the good news. That's the gospel according to Isaiah. Now this word behold, um, it's kind of an old word and it simply means to see and be impressed or affected by something significant. So um, it's to, be, it's to, be, it's to see something big and to have it affect you. For example, uh, we see a hole or a rock. We behold the Grand Canyon. Like we see, we see a woman walking down the hallway, we behold a bride walking down the aisle. Behold, it's to see something significant. So this passage says the good news is you getting a glimpse of God and his glory. And we'll get to verses 10 and 11 a little bit later. But before we do, I just want to ask a question as we, as we, as we get to this, 
the meat of this vision of God and His glory, have you settled for fringe benefits of the Christian life, of side benefits? And everything in life, we have, uh, we have main things and we have some side benefits that come along with those things. For example, uh, I am a middle school pastor. We did a middle school mission trip last week. And as a part of my job, I got to go to Carowinds and ride roller coasters. I, I, I get paid to ride roller coasters sometimes, you know? Wow, doesn't get any better, right? Um, but if you had a conversation with me, you said, Leland, what, do you, what, do you, what drives you in ministry? What do you love? And I said, that one day a year we go to Carowinds. You know, that's, that's what I live for. Man, you would know there's something wrong with me. I had set my whole life on a, a tiny fringe benefit of ministry. And it's totally possible this morning, even as a Christian, that you have set your heart, you are looking for glory in side benefits, a good marriage, usefulness in the church, theological knowledge, that, that clean conscience that comes with sins forgiven. You've set yourself on those things and you're missing the main thing. God himself, yours in Christ. Um, let's just see what we miss when we settle for less. Isaiah gives us a vision of God and his glory uh, through a series of rhetorical questions. So in the next 14 verses, we have 11 rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is simply a question asked for effect. For example, uh, my father, who's a physician and a very kind and gracious man, uh, he delivered me as a baby. So when I, was, uh, when I was a rebellious teenager, he would say to me, don't you know I brought you into this world? I can take you out, you know? A rhetorical question, I think. I think it was rhetorical. But, but anyways, so it's a question asked to make a point. And so Isaiah asked four, or 11 of them. We'll look at only at a few for time's sake. But here, first, look at this first question in verse 12. Behold the dimensions of your God. Verse 12 says, uh, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now the waters here refer to the oceans, the combined weight of the earth's ocean. And in the hollow of his hand just means right there. So God, God holds, he's big enough to hold the weight of the world's oceans just right there. Now it's hurricane season. Uh, hurricane season is upon us. It's a big deal here in Charleston. Um, but the weight and power of water is always fascinating to me. Did you know that the most dangerous and destructive part of a hurricane is not the winds or the tornadoes or the down trees, it's the storm surge. Major hurricanes push water inland. And so big hurricane, you can just watch on the Weather Channel, you know, you'll see houses just swept away by water. And just think about that. That is a fraction of a millionth of the Earth's oceans, just wrecking havoc on us. You know, some of you here have been to the beach and you get hit by a big wave, you know? That's just one wave of a giant ocean that knocks you over. And God is big enough to hold all of it, just right here. The dimensions get bigger. Um, the, end of verse, uh, the end of verse 12, Sorry, the middle says, uh, he marked off the heavens with a span. So a span here is just the distance between your thumb and your finger, and the heavens is everything you can see in the night sky. So you can see the Milky Way on a, cl a clear night with good vision, right? And so uh, this says that God marks that off with a span. Um, at the speed of light, 
you could travel around the circumference of the earth seven and a half times in one second. And for those of you who are traveling on planes this summer, you know, for 15 hours and getting an eighth of the way across the planet, that's fast. Seven and a half times in one second. At that speed, it would take you 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way. And God just goes like this. His dimensions are incomparable. There is no one like the Lord. But he's not just big and strong. He's not just, some, he's not just the cosmic bodybuilder or the great almighty. He is also incomparably wise and morally beautiful. And most of us in here uh, know someone that we've met who on the surface, they're really nothing special. You just meet them and you're not impressed by them. But as you watch their life, you just see this beauty inside of them. They just had the, they, they had the beauty, their heart, their character is beautiful. And this passage says, man, that's just a tiny, a tiny little beam from the sun that is God. Look at uh, verse, verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? God's moral attributes are beautiful and infinite. His goodness, his wisdom, justice, they're without limit. The New City Catechism says that God is, uh, this is question two, says God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, justice, and truth. Think about that. God runs the world he controls and rules over the nations, not with just a little bit of wisdom, but complete, infinite wisdom, the worst thing that's ever done in the history of humanity. God is gonna take that in his wisdom and he's gonna use it for his people's eternal good. Just think about the kind of wisdom that had God's son crucified. Who can think of that? Indeed, no one has measured the spirit of the Lord. Sidebar. Um, if God really is in control, if he really is ruling the world with infinite justice and wisdom, just let that change the way you watch the news. You know, let it change the way you scroll through your news app. You know, guys, God is not up in heaven wringing his hands in anger or biting his nails in fear. Like, he's ruling over America right now. He's ruling. So, back to God and his glory. Um, if you really want to show how big and cool something is, or how superior it is, you can compare it to something else. That's where I, Isaiah goes next. You know, if I, if I wanted to show you guys how cool the iPhone 8 is when, whenever it comes out, okay, uh, and I want to show you how, just how, how far technology has come, I could, I could put it up here on stage and just, you know, show you what it does and then compare it to the giant room-sized supercomputers that would do like one hundredth of what an iPhone 8 does. You know, the, the computers they had back in the 70s, the giant ones, and the iPhone 8 just does 100 times more just right here. You'd be like, wow, that's, that's a cool little device. Well, Isaiah goes next, and he compares God to the thing that comes most close to him, humanity. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Verse 17, it gets even more intense. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted as less than nothing and emptiness. So when Isaiah says the nations, you can, you can translate that as all of humanity, all of human achievement, the whole of human history lined up together, every army in the world together, every noble moment 
in human history together. Just think, uh, we're watching, I just finished watching Band of Brothers. It's a movie about World War II, and you just see the sacrifice and the nobility of the greatest generation laying their lives down for our country, you know? Just, the, just you know, it's amazing. But take moments like that. Take, take the might of nuclear weapons. Take, take Shakespeare's complete works, you know? The best work of art there is. Line them all up. That's what Isaiah's doing here. And he says, next to God, just like a drop from a bucket. This, uh, those of you who see me on the HD, you can probably tell what this is. This is one of those wonderful color in the lines sheets they give all the three and four year olds in uh, preschool, Sunday school. And uh, this is my uh, son, Gabe's. He's a four year old. This is his picture from last week, okay? And uh, Gabe didn't color in the lines. <laughs> he, chose, um, he chose to take his pink crayon and just, you know, like any four year old boy. I was impressed that he could just sit there that long, right? Anyways, anything, you know, anything he does, daddy loves, right? But what would you say to me if, in all seriousness, we traveled to Europe and I went to the museum where they hold the Mona Lisa and I held this up in front of the Mona Lisa's in the background and I held this up and I started talking about how great it was. You would think I was crazy. Or, or, or if I took it and I, we, we, went, we went to the Himalaya Mountains, okay? And we got a clear sight of Mount Everest, on a, on a clear day, and I just said, man, look, look at this picture. You would say, I was crazy. You would never listen to me preach again, you know? I mean, guys, when you take humanity, you take the best moment in human history, you take the most noble-hearted human being to ever live, you take, you take all of our achievements and power, and you put them next to God, and this is what you get. It's nothing compared to just a glimpse of his glory. He is without equal. He is incomparable. There's a final question, kind of a summary argument in verse uh, 26. We'll go quickly through this. Lift up your eyes on high and see the stars who created these. God says that he brings them out by number, calling them by name and the greatness of his might. God counts and sustains the stars. And I was really hoping to take the number of galaxies in the universe and the number of stars and multiply them together and give you this giant number about how many stars God can count. But as I, as I researched it, astronomers, the, the highest paid, smartest astronomers in, 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 our, in our world can't even estimate the number of stars in our own galaxy. They say it's somewhere between 100 and 400 billion. Just imagine a job where you could be off by 300 billion and still get paid, you know? Humanity and all of our smartness and glory, we can't even count the stars in our own galaxy. And God knows every star in the universe in the millions and billions of galaxies. His, his strength and might and knowledge and goodness, it's without limit. And that, according to Isaiah, is wonderful news. There's a Christian song by Addison Road, and one of its lines says, where have I even stood but the shore along your ocean? And this passage tells us that the closest you've ever felt to the Lord, the most in awe of Him and His power you've ever been, the most tear-filled your eyes have been in worship, you are just catching one little glimpse from the shore of the ocean that He is. He's endless. He's without equal. And that is, according to Isaiah, 
wonderful news. And at first it may not sound like wonderful news. You know, if you're like me and you really like to be important and significant, you know, or if you think that a God like this can't be intimately involved in your life, it doesn't, really, it doesn't necessarily sound like good news. But hear this, behold the greatest mystery in, in the world. Behold the hinge upon which all history turns. The God of Isaiah 40 become flesh. Colossians 2.9, the next verse that Buster might be preaching on next Sunday says this, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Just, just think about this doctrine that we say all the time and we sing about. God on high, exalted, the king, justice himself, becoming subject to his own law. Hands that hold oceans, becoming little baby hands, you know, that can't even grasp yet. I mean, understanding and knowledge without limit, being so like us, so human. The book of Luke says that Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge. Behold, infinity become a man. Think about the humility of God. Think about what it takes to leave heaven, to leave exaltation. When, when you are the one and to enter into human experience to such a degree that the book of Hebrews can say, he was like us in every respect, yet without sin. And don't just see him there. Don't just see God become a man. See him suffering for you. Think about the king of the universe suffering under Pontius Pilate, some no-name governor from Rome, you know? Think about, think about hands that stretch across galaxies being stretched out on a cross and nailed. Think about him dying. Think about heaven itself coming down. And for you, and out of love for you, in all of your sins and rebellion, to die for you. Think, think about him. Think about the one whose justice is unlimited, taking the wrath of every sin you've ever done, bearing justice's curse upon himself. If you can get a glimpse of that love, if you can just get a taste of the enormous love of God for you, it can be well in your soul today. It gets better, uh, even better. Look at, uh, let's go back to verses 10 and 11. Hear these as a Christian. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In Christ, God takes his might, his unlimited strength, his rulership, and he rules for your good. Look at what it says. It says he brings his reward with him. Guys, imagine what kind of rewards does the treasure of the universe bring with him for his people. It's, it's in Christ, God's strength and his rule is, is for you. It's not just for you, it's also tender. Look at what it says next. He's gonna, he's gonna tend his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs in his arms. Think about the infinity of God just tenderly holding a lamb and, and tenderly dealing with the weakest among us and, and dealing with us in our many frailties. Guys, whether you feel it or not, Whatever your circumstances are, God is tenderly ruling over your life. 
The last part of this verse just for, I really love, he, he gently leads those that are with young. You know, for all you uh, young parents out there, you got, you got little babies, you're not sleeping, you know, like life is tough. Life is tough for young parents. And this pastor says, man, God just gently leads them. He, he particularly cares. Infinity himself, the incomparable one, present in the, in the most minute details of your life. It gets even better. Christians, see that through Jesus, through his work on your behalf, okay, this God, the God of Isaiah 40, he's yours. He's your portion. You finally have something to enjoy that lasts forever. You know, have you ever, you've noticed, right, the best things in life, the things you always look forward to, you get them, and they're just not what you expected. C.S. Lewis said that we live all of our lives in the shadow lands, that we're always in, in the shade, things aren't as great as we think, but if we just get over the next hill, it'll be better. And every time we get there, every new experience, it's the same. Nothing in life can fulfill you. But Christian, this God, the one who is endless, the one whose beauty and goodness is forever, he is yours in the gospel. So leave those lesser loves today. You have a better portion in Jesus. So now, um, after hearing that the best news ever is God himself, we actually arrive to the point of this passage, which is surprising. But Isaiah, again, he wrote to people who had been conquered and who had all those emotions and all that bitterness and frustration that comes with being called God's child and having your entire life wrecked because of what God has done. Look at, uh, look at verse 27. And for O Jacob and O Israel, you can just substitute God's people. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? The Israelites had, had good theology. They knew God was big. They knew he was huge. They knew, they knew he was great in their heads. But the theology they lived their lives by said, he doesn't see me. He would never let this happen to me. If God is good, how can he, how can he let me be conquered like this? And uh, when we're frustrated and we're discouraged, that's what we're doing. It's, it's a functional unbelief. We have a dog named Riley in our family, and uh, my poor golden retriever had two whole years when she was the only child. You know, when we gave her all of our attention, you know, went on doggy dates with other dog owners, which is just, I think about that now, it's impossible. But anyways, um, but now she's, ha she's had to get used to playing second, third, fourth fiddle. We got kids now. She's not number one anymore. And I'll just admit, we take care of her. She's fine. But there are days when I walk by her like 10 times and don't even notice her existence or acknowledge it. And she's extremely scared of noise. And so with everyone in our neighborhood shooting fireworks off, there are times when I'm like shoving anxiety pills down her throat that she doesn't want to take, you know? Her, her experiences with me aren't very pleasant. And um, some, of, some of you in this room this morning, and all of us at times, you are seeing the Lord Jesus and his rule over your life the way my dog sees me right now. You're in your head, you're like, oh, I know God loves me, but why isn't he answering my prayers? Why are, why, why are my kids still walking away from the Lord? Why am I still single? Why am I still jobless? Well, why does it hurt so bad if God loves me? And, and what's, what's go, guys, what's going on there? It's, it's not, it's that you're functionally living your life that he, he doesn't know you. And it's crazy to me how quickly uh, 
I can get there. Uh, yesterday was my bride Sarah's birthday. And uh, we've been married for, it'll be six years in August. Um, and when you hit, at least for us, when we've hit the four, five, six year mark, kids and everything, it's easy in our marriage to just get into survival mode and to not really like pursue each other. And I'm, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners there. And so I've been really working on my like husband game, trying to pursue her well. And I had all of these wonderful plans uh, for her birthday yesterday. I just went all out. And uh, at least in my mind, <laughs> And it was, just, it was just an epic fail. It was just bad. I mean, everything I wanted to do just, just did not go as planned. And she was very gracious and kind. And we, had a, we ended up having a great evening after that. And she's great. Uh, but by 11 a.m., I was just boiling. Like, why is everything that I planned going wrong? And on the scale of life's struggles, if the scale is 1 to 10 and 10 is bad and 1 is nothing, that's like a 1.2. You know, that's nothing. And even there, what, what am I doing? What's going on in my heart? I'm looking up to heaven and saying, come on. That's, what, that's what's going on when you're frustrated, when you're discouraged, when you're disappointed. You're looking up in heaven, you're going, come on. And this passage tells us, in the middle of all of our discouragement and frustration, here verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The one who counts the stars, he knows you. He knows exactly where you're at. He, he understands. He's, he's identified with you in Christ. And he offers you not deliverance from your circumstances, not an easier life, but he offers you his unlimited strength. Look at, uh, look at verse 29, 30, and 31. He gives power to the faint, to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall, be, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. In Christ, Strength that holds oceans is yours. You, God will give you exactly what you need to bear up under your difficulties, under your frustrations. You know, if, if, my, if my yesterday was a 1.5, some of you guys are walking through eights. You know, your, your lives are filled with tears. And, and what you want is for things to change, and maybe they will, and you should pray for them. But God says here, wherever you're at, my strength is yours. Verse 31 says how? It says those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And our culture defines waiting as like, you know, standing in line, hands crossed, like foot tapping, like, come on, what's going to happen? Biblical waiting is much different. Waiting on the Lord is, is relishing his promises and expecting them to be fulfilled. The ESV study Bible says it, uh, it's in your notes. It says, uh, waiting is savoring God's promise by faith until the time of fulfillment is to take these truths about God, to take this offer and to preach it to yourself, to say, this is my God. He is with me. He's going to help me. Is to get alone and to soak in this vision of who he is and what he promises. To wait on God is really to behold him and to behold the one who helps you. As we close, I will ask one more question. Have you ever wondered how the great Christians did it. Like, for example, how did, how did the Christians in the ancient church, 
go to be burned at the stake or go to be tortured with hymns of joy upon their lips. How does that happen? How does, that, how does a man like Adoniram Judson, the first missionary to ever cross the Atlantic Ocean sent from America, how does, he, how does a man like that, I think in his early 20s, go to Burma, which is a modern-day Myanmar and was like North Korea that, in those days, how does he go there, spend his entire life there, bury two wives and multiple children? How does he go there and endure? How does he deal with that? How does a guy like David Livingstone, who also lived in the 1800s, he was a Christian uh, explorer missionary, how does he basically explore the entire subcontinent of Africa in the 1800s, always sick, always having his life in danger, always struggling to balance this call on his life and, and shepherding his family well? How does he do that and then at the end of his life say, I never made a sacrifice? How does that happen? And many of us think that th these great men and women were just special. They're just different. They're like, uh, we're here and they're, you know, they're kind of up there. They're just, they're special. And guys, the truth is, and don't miss this, it was the strength of God in their lives. It wasn't them. They, they had a God with inexhaustible resources, the one that the scriptures say belong the cattle of a thousand hills. They had his strength, unlimited strength, given to them in Christ to bear up under whatever their life required of them. And that same strength, as you approach God through Jesus, trusting him, is available to you. So wait on him. Maybe you get alone today, and you get before this passage or something like it, and you just soak in the glory of God. You take, you take that circumstance that is crushing you, and you just bring it to the one who's going to give you help. And if you do that, you may find, as Psalm 73 says, that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, you are utterly beyond comparison, and we are just thankful today that somehow you are, you are ours in Christ. I just pray it would be our glory, that it would be the chief desire and pursuit of our lives to know you and love you and treasure you. I pray you just minister to us now through the word in Jesus' name. Amen.